Welcome to the official podcast channel of the Australian Physiotherapy Association, the latest in clinical, academic and health leadership, giving you access to preeminent physiotherapy research from Australia and across the globe. While many will know APA Honoured Member Paul Hodges from his research into neuromotor movement and musculoskeletal pain, few may be aware that his work focusing on the female pelvic floor has directed best practice in this area for a number of years. This podcast sees Paul chat with Sean Morrison and Patricia Newman, both specialist continents and women's health physiotherapists, about his latest venture, growing our understanding of the male pelvic floor, an area of research that remains 10 years behind its female counterpart. So the question, I guess, of why male pelvic floor and male continence research is so far behind women is an interesting one. Yes, I think it um, is... uh Historically, we've come to female incontinence um, uh, in Australia from Pauline Chiarelli's interest in it years ago, which was um, very female-oriented. Obstetrics. And we've evolved as a a profession, as a group, and realised that we had a contribution to make to male incontinence when... Uh, men were having radical prostatectomies and were very wet and way wetter than women ever are. Um, and the uh, uh, uro- urological surgeons were looking for some help to see if we could help with their uh, these men's incontinence problems. And that's really when we started getting involved. How many years ago was that? I would reflect probably a bit over 10. Yeah, I was going to say 12 years yeah. ago. Yeah. And from a research perspective, we were setting up a research project that we're going to apply for funding for in the women's domain, looking at how all of the different mechanisms interact together. And we began to look at just some of the men's literature and realised how little there was known. So we, in fact, changed gear and started to investigate the the mechanisms of male continence, realising that there's very little known about normal function. Mm. And then we initially set up to understand why are men incontinent after surgery and then quickly changed our mind to decide how on earth are they continent after surgery when they, there's potential to lose so much of the normal mechanism of continence with surgery? How on earth can they regain continence? So it's become a really fascinating question. And from that we've discovered that really there is some really big flaws in the literature that we need to fill. It's interesting, isn't it? Obviously, in female, we've had some fantastic researchers when it comes to anatomy and understanding the continence mechanism, like John Delancey, for example, and there's really not an equivalent, hasn't been an equivalent. So you'd think it would have been a urologist who would want to know why about the male continence mechanism, given that's what they... But there hasn't been... There, well, there, there's a couple of groups um, in the Waltz. States. Oh, mm. Constantine. Waltz. And um, so Chris Constantine yeah, has done a, a little bit of work. Mm. Um, he did some um, mechanical work a number of years ago, yeah. but he didn't really take that forward. There's a fellow, Myers, who's done some anatomical work, but there's this bias, and I talked a bit about it yesterday in the, at the conference, and that is that in women there's this big bias towards the pubarectiles, pubercoxygeus, levator, and our muscle group because they're accessible. You can assess, yeah. assess them per vaginum. You can, um, they are muscles that are particularly at risk from birth trauma, all those things. So there's big bias there. And in the men's literature the bias is towards the sphincter because you have yeah. your prostate ad, it's the muscle that's most at risk. So although the anatomy is actually quite similar, you, you, the, the literature is biased by these two key features and it means that we've, we've become a bit distorted in our perception and that's been a big, big problem. Yeah, I think one of the issues with the early physio involvement was that 
we had this model of pelvic floor muscle training for women mm -hmm. and so so many of the studies have gone on uh, just applying a training uh, mm -hmm. protocol strength to training. these men where they're focused on strength training um, and the, the, so the literature shows that this doesn't really work and nobody's gone and questioned why they've just gone on continuing mm -hmm. to focus on anal sphincter mechanisms and um, trying to do more biofeedback, more electrical stimula stimulation per anum, and uh, it just doesn't hasn't produced the results. So and we've got to stop and think, what's going on here? Exactly, and it makes sense that that's what people have done. In that, in the female world, you do have access per vaginum to do yeah. the assessment. So in men, what have you got? Well, yeah, you, that's the only so, yeah. <laughs> You can do it per anum, and the, so the assessments have gone down that path. This is where we can make some assessment of public floor function forgetting to actually take a step back and look through different eyes and say, well, actually, those muscles aren't necessarily that important for urinary continence. Clearly, you can assess something about pivorectalis and levator mm -hmm. yeah. but you've, you've, most, of the most of the biofeedback and stimulation is for the sphincter, anal sphincter. So we've, we've missed it. Mm. Yeah. I think what's also happened in the last 12 years is that um, the transperineal ultrasound mm -hmm. has become available. Mm -hmm. It's only 2005, I think, that Peter Deet started yes. using ultrasound to investigate the female pelvic floor. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was um, really privileged to be taught how to do that mm -hmm. quite a few years ago and thought um, what a wonderful tool this is for assessing the male pelvic floor and tried it out. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, you can see the anatomy so wonderfully and mm -hmm. it takes you away from that anal focus. focus. You've got another way An of focus. assessing the whole of the pelvic floor and looking to see what those anterior structures are doing. Exactly. And we, when we initially started researching it, we were looking at the same features that they look at in females and then we realised that there was these other movements happening and mm. that's taken us down this big path of trying to validate what those movements mean and revealed that they actually do tell us about the other features of continence which are actually about Urinary, urinary, yeah. yeah. So Spinter. ultrasound is an unbelievable tool mm. for us to use. Mm. But like everything, we can't uh, put our blinkers on and only think about what the ultrasound tells us because that is actually one piece of the picture. It's not the, mm. not the whole. Well, life. that's right. It it tells us a lot, but if there's not much movement, we have to be able to interpret that mm -hmm. so that um, a pelvic floor that's not moving much on ultrasound could be a weak pelvic floor mm -hmm. that's um, uh, just not able to uh, shorten effectively. It could be a too tight pelvic floor that's got no room to move in terms mm -hmm. of further shortening um, or there could be too much intra-abdominal pressure just keeping it down so mm -hmm. we we still need to be very good clinicians mm -hmm. we just can't have this as a tool we need to be good clinicians and understand the whole body and how it's working and what else is contributing to the, to that pelvic floor exactly so Paul just um going back to the ultrasound and then some of the other work you've done trying to um, and using EMG and learning more about the actual continence mechanism can you sort of summarize what your overall findings have been from um that? well i guess the the key thing that we've identified is that it is an interplay between different muscles that we have the striated urethral sphincter which is like a horseshoe around the mid urethra there is a the levator ani so piborectalis which can lift the bladder and can compress the urethra and then there's a bulbar cavernosus which is one of the superficial muscles which clearly is your last line of defense but it's it's part of the system and what we've shown is that there is an interaction between those muscles. For example, when you cough, you get really early activation of the sphincter and it shortens and compresses. The pyrorectalis, it actually, it contracts but actually lengthens. So there is this complex interplay between different types of contraction as you're generating forces. And I don't think we can rely on any one muscle to provide the, 
the control. Like if you think about it, you've got this one muscle pulling back, the other muscle pulling forward. It's got to be this beautiful mechanism for mm. antagonising each other, mm. for compressing the urethra. So um, it is a really fascinating system and techniques like ultrasound allow us to see all of that together. Transabdominal ultrasound doesn't. It only no. allows you to see the elevation of the bladder. But transperineal does. And um, we've validated these things against electrodes. So we, we realised that... Um, using EMG invasive techniques is never going to be feasible for us to do clinically. It's, it's too invasive, it takes too much time, and <laughs> whether men would agree to it is, is the next question. Yeah. Um, but we've developed all these techniques of making recordings through the urethral mucosa, um, fine wire electrodes placed in the muscles um, via the perineum, and we've shown that the ultrasound measures are valid, but there are some complexities to interpreting what they show in that mm. if you see, um, like if you do a cough or if you do a strong manoeuvre, muscles may lengthen or shorten and you don't really know about, you, you've got to be really careful about how you interpret it, so it does take some skill to understand what's going on. But it, it's clear that there is this beautiful mechanism of these muscles working together and that if a man has surgery and loses part of that system, or if a man has a pelvic injury and loses the innovation to some part of that system, it's going to change change that interaction. And we really need to have good assessment skills to be able to work out the individual characteristics of a that a man is presenting with to be able to know what to target with treatment. And that's where the skill of the clinician comes in. Mm. And then. Um as clinicians, the next bit of work that you did has been so helpful in terms of looking at cueing of mm -hmm. a male pelvic floor. Because I think that's something that a lot of people have struggled with over the years. And I know lots of um, women's health continence physios weren't sure what sort of instructions they should be mm -hmm. giving men to, and it's traditionally mainly being females who can't even feel themselves what, what it might feel like to actually do a correct active mm -hmm. pelvic floor contraction and which, which parts. So um, that's been probably the most clinically applicable work you've done as well as enhancing mm. the understanding but sure and it's down. it's been um fascinating and yesterday in the conference there was some interesting discussion about the best way to phrase some of those oh yes that's right maybe we'll move from shorten the penis yeah so tell us what you found with the verbal instructions so the the um the, the instruction that gave the biggest difference in terms of um what um had the biggest difference between the instructions for particular muscles was this instruction of um well, there's three versions, either shorten the penis, re retract the penis, which apparently is a slightly better preference of word, or um, pull the turtle's head into its shell. And so those instructions encourage a dorsal displacement, and that really does focus on the striated urethral sphincter. But the other instruction that also works for those muscles is stop the flow. And, mm -hmm. um, but the interesting thing is that an instruction that's often used in women of elevate the pelvic floor actually encouraged men to make too much intra-abdominal pressure, which was really counterproductive. So... It is a bit gender-specific. Um, and also the instruction to squeeze in around the back passage. Yep. Um, Clearly focused. Focused on the yep. anal sphincter yep. and didn't preferentially um, recruit the urethral sphincter. And I think no. a lot of clinicians, um, uh, well, in the literature, this is what's been proposed and what's been done. Sure. And, and that's, that's not just in men. In, in women, there's the assumption that um, contracting instructions that will cue the levator ana will also encourage the sphincter. Mm. So... Maybe we need to think about that for mm. how we can refine instructions for women. I well. think this is, this is missing in the female literature. Mm -hmm. Because stop the flow, which was found to be good. We had quite a few clinicians come up to us after the session yesterday and say, I have a problem with you guys using that because yeah. we've traditionally been told, been told not, to. not to tell people to stop their flow because of issues with voiding dysfunction or mm -hmm. retention or UTIs that it can cause. So 
So what do you think? Trish, what's your thoughts about that? Well, I think after surgery, men uh, need to be able to stop their flow. Mm -hmm. this, this is the critical um, activation that they need to shut their urethra off mm -hmm. um, under increased increases in intra-abdominal pressure. And that's for most men. And this is where being an, a good clinician is important because mm -hmm. you've got to identify where men don't fit this pattern. But for the majority of men, it's this inability to keep their urethra shut enough under pressure with all the things they do in everyday life, mm -hmm. such as getting out of a chair. Um, and um, so if they can't stop their flow, they're never going to be able to do it. And I think this is one of the predictors. Yep. It, it's been shown yep. to be a predictor of a, a better outcome if men can stop their flow after the catheter's taken out and they're voiding for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, that is a very important function. So, yes, practice it until you can. So, what, like the, the things that are talked about in the clinical sphere are that you will interfere with the micturition reflex mm -hmm. and you will um, cause retention of urine and potentially increase um, risk of infection. It, so, you're. Like obviously, in a, in a man post prostatectomy, who there is no risk of retention. They, no, <laughs> unless they get a stricture. <laughs> yeah, that's so, right. Yeah, so yeah. what do you need to look out for, though? You just need to make sure that you're asking them about their voiding pattern and their. Um, you have to know about this man. Yeah. You have mm -hmm. to know um, mm -hmm. that, to he, that he uh, doesn't have a voiding dysfunction. So you need mm -hmm. to be able to assess that and make sure um, that he's, he is emptying. But for the majority of men post um, post surgery. Um, they don't have avoiding, they have a storage uh, mm. dysfunction, they cannot store urine. For some men, everything's just leaking out of the bladder. And so that ability to shut things mm -hmm. off um, is just a, the key to it, I mm -hmm. think. And so they need to learn to develop that particular mm -hmm. skill. So I don't, I don't actually have a problem. If they've got a stricture, sure, you don't teach them that, but that's where you, the importance of a, a good clinician comes in. Mm -hmm. and, and if they're presenting with urgency symptoms or something, you'll do a dipstick and see if they've got an infection, but it's, it's mm -hmm. very unusual. So what, what is the... Like those two clinical interpretations of um, interfering with the reflex and retention, is there, is there evidence to suggest that those are actually true or is this something that we... Of just being overly cautious about. Yeah, that's a very interesting question, mm. and I think there there is the potential for that to happen. Mm -hmm. That I've gone looking for real evidence of that and haven't actually found mm. it. Um, but people say it can disrupt the voiding reflex, mm -hmm. um, and in this particular population, I think it's being extremely overcautious, unnecessarily mm -hmm. so, because men need to develop that skill. Even if they've got overactive bladder symptoms, it's the ability to shut that bladder neck, what's left of it, to stop urine leaking into the proximal urethra that's triggering their detrusor contraction. Mm -hmm. So it is an important skill, really, whether they've got stress incontinence or whether there's um, an overactive bladder component to it. Mm -hmm. But your caveat in any time you're counselling your patient is to tell them that don't do it, you know, five times every single, single time you void, hmm. right? So, because sometimes men do take things to the extreme. And don't only do it then. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah, what, exactly. And, and once you can do it, don't go on practicing mm -hmm. it. Yeah. That's, what, that's, yeah. that's yeah. the information that but I give them. Use the motor programming that you've developed. And mm -hmm. so every time they do their exercises or do their functional training, that's what they're thinking. They're doing that, using that same pathway. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so I don't yeah. think there's a problem with that. Mm. So do you think there's instructions that are not effective? That apart from the squeeze around the anus, are there instructions that you well, think are not appropriate? I found it interesting what you found with the elevate the bladder, that that mm -hmm. wasn't as and, and, effective. And one thing about it, the data is that it's not everyone who responds badly, yeah. but that instruction is more likely more to likely. get a, a man okay. to, yep. to focus too hard. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, but are there other like there's lots of instructions around. Are there ever? And, and and we didn't test some things like um, lift your testes, um, which is what I did yeah. in my little study. Okay, um, that was the instruction yeah. to stop their flow of urine and focus on lifting their testicles. Um, to create an awareness of the whole pelvic floor, mm-hmm. I said also you should feel um, some movement of the back passage. It comes along for the ride, but yeah. it's not the main focus. But um, drawing the um, stopping your flow and, and lifting the uh, testicles in. Uh, like you're walking out into cold water, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and which um, is a very good thing. <laughs> and very nice. um, and we recorded uh, the same range of um, mm-hmm. bladder neck displacement as um, you and um, Ryan Stafford okay. did in your study. So it was exactly the same and, and outcome you, in terms of. And you didn't of, do it with and without that extra cue of the lifting the testes. No, it was no. stop your flow and and feel your testicles pulling up. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a combined instruction and. Okay. Uh, it, as I say, it produced exactly the same bladder neck displacement as, well, not exactly the same, but the mm-hmm. same, very similar range to, to what you found in. And this, my population was um, a symptomatic group of men who were about to have prostate mm-hmm. surgery, um, and this was part of their preparation. Um, and your population was uh, healthy young males, yes. and so it it produces the same. Uh, What's fascinating me was about the range that you found, though. Yeah. What, what do you think that's all Well, about? and that's a really interesting observation because um, we do see a range, and I think that's based on a really key thing that we find, and that is there's different strategies. Mm. There are men who are clearly dominant. When they do a voluntary manoeuvre, they're clearly dominantly using their pyroreptiles, and there's other men who are very dominantly using their sphincter. And um, so that means that some men use... There's a big displacement at one and small at the other, and then other men it's the opposite. So I think the big range is reflective of the difference. What we don't know properly yet is how much those different voluntary strategies relate to functions. Mm. And we've done one experiment where we showed that um, the men who use the um, who are sphincter dominant have a better cough strategy when we evoke it um, automatically. So there is some relationship, but I don't have the complete picture of that yet. And how that relates to their post-operative recovery. And that's absolutely the Because in clinical practice, we see men who are occasionally, unfortunately, really, really wet Mm -hmm. and um, have been doing lots of strengthening and they've got really strong puborectalis, but they're really still Mm -hmm. completely incontinent. So it's clearly not just about puborectalis strength. There's there's a a key factor about Mm -hmm. the um, ability to keep that urethra shut. And maybe the men who present with a voluntary strategy that's biased towards pyrorectalis, maybe it's not that they don't use their sphincter, but their voluntary cues are only able to access their pyrorectalis, and yeah. then they're training something that isn't going to necessarily mm. be um, the best post-op. And there are also other factors, iatrogenic dam- damage from mm. the surgery, yes, that they absolutely. just have um, not a, 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 a short membranous urethra that just mm. hasn't allowed... Um, uh, a good connection with that um, uh, aspect of the um, urethra that's uh, above the sphincter enough or there's been damage to the sphincter, mm-hmm. that all, that's all going to play a big role exactly. too in some of those men. And there's some real confusion at the moment um, about the... So the neurovascular bundle that's at risk when you have prostatectomy, it doesn't supply the motor innovation to the sphincter. But um, So if you, if you have neurovascular loss, it doesn't necessarily lose that part. You may lose... Um, sympathetic and you may lose mm-hmm. erectile dysfunction mm-hmm. and you may lose some sensory function but you don't lose the motor activation except that at the um, prostate cancer um, 
conference in Cairns, there was a, a paper that showed that in some men, some of the motor innovation does go via mm. the neurovascular bundle. Wow. So again, there's going to be individual difference in how mm. men present post-surgically mm. and whether that's going to have an impact. There's even debate amongst the surgeons as to how much that sphincter is affected by the surgery. Mm-hmm. Like they, they often say to me, "We don't, we don't touch it. We mm. don't. It's fine. We we, we leave mm-hmm. it. It's it's all still there." Yeah, but surgeons also say that they have um, no incontinence after surgery, yeah. and the, the one of the problems is they do see things a bit too black and white. In that, um, in a lot of the literature, it says that there's no incontinence, but the only reason for that is that. Well, one of the main reasons for that is that they only consider it to be incontinence to be present if it's complete, if there's no control. If they wear two pads a day, that's fine. Mm. So there's different perspectives. And And I think this is where we as clinicians um, can evaluate that by getting men to do pad weighing, for example, and plot plot their recovery, Mm -hmm. and we can reassure them that uh, their pad weights are coming down and, and that they will at some point... Um, reach the baseline of, of no leakage, um, or we can see if um, those pad weights aren't coming down, that the, mm-hmm. the trajectory is um, no change, and that is going to provide us with um, a, a good trigger for taking further action. And for some mm-hmm. men, unfortunately, they do need to have um, mm-hmm. further surgical... And there is, there is only so much the muscle system can do. Yes, and of course. That's what we have access to, and mm. if there is surgical damage or if they, there is... Um, um, some stiffening of the urethral wall that doesn't allow it to close or there's some stricture or whatever, there is going to be a limit to what we can hope to achieve. Mm-hmm. And we need to accept that, that, we're not, that it isn't all just about no. the muscles. I think the, um, uh, the research has been uh, challenging to interpret because uh, the uh, Cochrane reviews found that there was actually no, uh, mm-hmm. no change with uh, pelvic floor muscle training, even very intensive pelvic floor muscle training, if it was started <coughs> um, uh, after surgery with men who already had established incontinence. Uh, but uh, uh, it seems that if you interpret the literature a little differently from the way the Cochrane reviewers did and look to see what the key factors um, may be, that taking a, an approach of focusing on urethral sphincter control and uh, using uh, appropriate cues and doing functional training may in fact improve outcomes. So starting before surgery so that men have some confidence that they can contract their pelvic floor. They've established that motor program and then they can go through surgery and once the catheter's out they've already got this motor program that they can switch on to and, and start using. And so I think with um, some uh, refinements to the way this has been done, mm-hmm. hopefully the future will be uh, a little brighter. Yes, so, so what you're saying, Trish, is things like preoperative management, focus on function rather than just strengthening, focus on urethral mechanisms rather than anal mechanisms, and considering the bigger picture, making sure that you're taking into account all the whole. Yes, and and the big picture is going to include that whole, um, the whole man, Mm -hmm. his uh, anxieties, because um, they are very anxious. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where a preoperative session Mm -hmm. uh, can be very Mm -hmm. helpful uh, to understand what his social supports are, how much coaching he's getting from his wife about doing Mm -hmm. pelvic floor exercises the wrong way, to to be able to... Uh, correct that so that she also understands and knows how to support mm-hmm. him and, um, and, and also to understand uh, more about 
his motivation after surgery, what he's got to get back to in terms of is he going back to heavy manual labour, mm-hmm. uh, is he going back to um, a, a computer a sitting at a desk job, uh, and um, yeah, so we've got to have that big bigger picture mm-hmm. about... Um, so a good pre-op yeah. assessment is really a, a biopsychosocial approach, and you need to go through all the systems and find out about bladder and pre-existing symptoms of LUTs because that can actually be a predictor of, of outcome. So if they've got any other lower urinary tract symptoms, definitely looking at their bowel function because if they've had long-term bowel disorders such as constipation and straining, that might have an impact on bladder and then it may have impacted their pelvic floor function. Because I know we can't, I think we can presume that every man has perfect pelvic floor muscles going into the surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, and then looking at their pre-existing erectile dysfunction and then as Trish said really finding out a lot about their psychosocial approach and goal setting and and also I think the really big important thing of a good pre-op assessment is managing expectations to setting up. Yes so how do you advise men um, before their surgery Shan? Well it's interesting because a lot of them have been told by their surgeon that they're going to be back on the golf course dry in four to six weeks and back at work in two weeks and so that's what they're expecting and that certainly isn't the case. So we will tell them all that they will all be wet when the catheter comes out and that there will be varying progress after that because I think they've all heard stories of men who the catheter comes out and they're dry and so they always hope that that, that'll be them Mm -hmm. but it's better to be realistic about. So it's about, I guess, being realistically positive. Don't want to be too negative and... Um, but uh, yeah, it's important that they know that they will be wet and that then we can do the muscle training and the rest of our intervention and they'll improve over time. Okay, well thank you so much you two for a great early morning chat. It was, uh, was lovely to talk mm. about it. It was really good to talk about it and there is so many things we need to do. Yes, it's very exciting and thank you Paul for your contribution and you know, the, the, it's exciting what's going to happen the next step. Fingers crossed for that green h and For the grant that comes out in the next yes. cute couple of weeks. To find out more information, visit physiotherapy.asn.au.